Well, good morning. This is the time of year where Elise and I continually argue. It's over whether the, the weather is just right or just wrong. I like the cold, she likes the hot, and so every day we get to change back which of us uh, is appeased. So if you haven't been in Georgia long and you don't like the weather today, just wait for tomorrow. So... But it's a joy to be together with you all this morning um, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we're going to begin to reorient ourselves to this Gospel that we've been in for just over three years now, in chapter 19. As you're turning there, I have a question for you. Um, I warn you now, be careful, don't raise your hand. But as you were headed here this morning, when driving to church, How many of you drove as close to the speed limit as possible? Maybe just a little bit over it, but I won't ask who exceeded it. And I'm not saying that driving the speed limit or right up to the speed limit is wrong, but I I think, as we all subtly acknowledge it, that it's somewhat illustrative. It's illustrative of the reality that in a fallen world, we tend to, as a whole, ask, where is the line and how close to it can I get? We tend to want to know exactly how far can I go before something is wrong, before it's unlawful, before it's sinful. And this is not a new phenomenon. All you have to do is look at the Pharisees of Jesus' day. In fact, in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, some of the Pharisees approach Jesus because they see an opportunity to take what is an ethical and moral issue that was hotly contested, hotly debated, One where persons wanted to know, how much can I get away with before I break the law? To try and hurt Jesus' credibility. Possibly harm him. As we observe this interaction this morning here in chapter 19 of Matthew, we are going to see how the issue is always much deeper then how far can I go, or where is the line? It's a matter of seeking God's will. It's a matter not of where are the limits of His mercy and grace, and how close can I come before I exhaust them, but much more a matter of the heart and of pleasing the Lord and asking, what is your will? Pray with me this morning as we enter into our study of Matthew. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we have to come and study your word together this morning. To read it, to be taught, to be instructed. We thank you for your spirit who is active and at work and those who are your disciples, guiding us and leading us into truth. I pray that you would faithfully do that this morning. That you would help lead us into an understanding of this text, of your desire for us, your desire for our obedience but much more than that for our heart. Pray that we would see that this morning, that we would understand it, that we would come away this morning with a renewed desire and earnestness to seek you above all else. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, let me go ahead and read this section of Matthew 19 together. So it's, it's going to be right there at the beginning, Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 12. We read, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses give her a certificate of command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is this, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. We looked at the very beginning of verse 1 last week. Verses 1 to 2 serve at least two important purposes here in Matthew's gospel, at this juncture, this point in Matthew's gospel. First, it provides us with that repeated phrase that we looked at last week, That phrase, when Jesus had finished these words. A phrase which we noted last week marks off a main division within the book of Matthew, really helping to demark five major sections within the Gospel of Matthew. Secondly, these two verses, though brief, mark the movement of Jesus from Galilee back now down into Israel. He went from the north, he's moving back down into Israel then crossing over the Jordan, heading eastward beyond the Jordan. And you'll see why this is important in a moment. But it begins to mark and to identify his ministry as he is coming back into Israel as he begins making his way step by step to the cross. Now if I were to ask you, what is at this point in Jesus' ministry, this is your quiz for three years of study, At this point in Jesus' ministry, what is his relationship with the religious leaders? Friendly, amicable, peaceful, neutral, antagonistic, hate-filled? It's more on the latter, isn't it? The interaction with the Jewish religious leaders has been heating up. It's becoming much more polemical, hateful, much more heated. And so now as Jesus moves back into Judea, out east of the Jordan, he continues, we notice, with that same ministry, that ministry that really irritated the religious leaders of healing and teaching because it attracted these large crowds. He was, he was already very popular, and that popularity was just increasing with the people. They were losing their influence. They were losing their sway. People were already saying no other person in all of Israel has ever taught like this. That hurt their pride. And so it's here beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist spent 
most of his ministry. You remember that, right? At the beginning of Matthew, we found John, and when it describes his ministry, it was beyond the Jordan. He would come to the Jordan, he would baptize, but his ministry was out east beyond the Jordan. And it's here that Jesus is approached by a group of Pharisees while he's healing and teaching the large crowds. And again, this relationship that has become increasingly antagonistic can be seen in one of the more recent interactions in Matthew 16, where Jesus called them a wicked and perverse generation. There's no way to sugarcoat that. Shortly before that, he called them blind guides and hypocrites. In some of the other Gospels, we know that he calls them whitewashed tombs, brood of vipers. The disciples were getting worried. And even before Matthew, uh, Matthew 16, back in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 12, they went up to him and said, hey, Jesus, do you, do you realize you're offending them with these words? I don't know how dunce they, or dumb they thought he was. He knew exactly what he was doing. Of course he knew they were getting offended. In fact, he went and he had been telling his disciples that he was going to suffer and he was going to be killed by these same religious leaders. So when we come to Matthew 19, there is no expectation that things are going to get any better with the Pharisees. Jesus has been going from bad to worse, and Jesus has said, I'm going back to Jerusalem, I will suffer many things, I will be handed over, and I will be killed by these religious leaders, by these Pharisees. So we expect that when they come in chapter 19, they are not coming for a positive reason or even a neutral reason. It is a calculated attack. This is no true inquiry. It's a trap. And the language Matthew uses lets us know it's a trap. Not just the context, but even the language itself. It says, they came to Jesus, what? Testing him. Testing him. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to discredit him. Their question then is not going to be an honest one. And by honest one, they didn't really want an answer. There was a whole other reason for their question. And we just read the passage. And perhaps at this point, what comes to mind is the question, how is this a trap? What is it about this question that would have trapped Jesus? What would it have done to Jesus? What were they hoping to gain by this question? I'm glad you asked. To understand how this is a test, or how, we, or how it might have even been used to undermine Jesus, we need a bit of background and context. Some of this you may catch on to very quickly, because you'll start to piece together, going all the way back to Matthew 1 and the life of John the Baptist, and this will start to click. You'll remember some of the history there. But unlike what some might think or have even said, there was not a single pharisaical view of marriage and divorce and remarriage. There were, in fact, many different views, just as there are today. And amongst the many views, there were two primary perspectives. And they were organized around two leading rabbis who lived a little bit before Jesus and died off probably or near the beginning of his ministry. They may have gone on just a little bit later. For those of you that are interested, their names were Hillel and Shammai. Well, Hillel and Shammai had a debate. And Hillel and Shammai debated, and their followers continued to debate how one would view divorce and remarriage. And it all boiled down to two words. 
put on two words in the entire Old Testament, and it was in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. So they're in the law of Moses, where Moses permitted divorce on the basis of a wife losing favor because of, and here's the two words, arwat davar. That is, something indecent or something immoral, arwat being indecency, immorality, and davar being something. And normally you would read this as something which is indecent or an indecency of some kind, immorality of some kind. However, Hillel and those who followed him, they decided that there must have been an implied or in between these two words. It's indecency or anything. In other words, divorce was permitted because of indecency, immorality, or just anything they wanted. Anything that caused the wife to fall into disfavor with the husband. And you can just imagine the reasons that were concocted. If you thought no-fault divorce was a problem in this country, you should have seen some of the reasons that are in Jewish history. Husbands could divorce their wives for something as petty as burning the bread, or bad cooking, or as subjective and trivial as they didn't look pretty enough this past week. Or because there's another woman who is now more favorable in my eyes, so I can divorce my wife because she's not favorable. And Moses said in Deuteronomy, it was just unfavorable. And the wife had very little recourse. On the other side of the debate over divorce, you have Shammai. He took a much more conservative and strict view and said that divorce was permissible according to Deuteronomy 24.1, only on the basis of an immoral thing. There's no implied or, it's an immoral thing. Immorality. So divorce was severely limited by Shammai's teaching and by that of his followers. Now this debate had been going on for quite some time. It was somewhat hotly contested. And you can probably imagine which rabbi's view was favored the most by the greater percentage of the population, at least the male population, right? It was Hillel. He made it easy to divorce. He made it easy to follow one's selfish desires. He made it easy to follow the sinful flesh. So when it came to divorce, conservative viewpoints were not looked upon as favorably by a majority of persons. It not only restricted their future behavior, but it even condemned their current and past behavior, and they wanted none of that. So, again, the popular opinion was this extreme no-fault divorce. There's another reason, a very important contextual reason, why this was going to be a trap. So, again, the first reason is they know that Jesus is going to be on the more conservative side of this, so they want him to fall out of favor with the general populace. There's a second contextual reason that this was a trap. And this one I think you can catch on to. You may have already figured it out. Jesus is beyond the Jordan. Do you remember whose territory, what king's territory this was? This was Herod's territory. Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, he went by both names. And you may remember that John the Baptist was what? He was put to death by this same Herod. Do you remember why he was put to death by this same Herod? In Matthew 14, 3-4, we're reminded that John the Baptist had been telling Herod, you can't go divorce your wife to go marry your brother's wife. That's not okay. 
Now, if you were of the school of Hillel, it was just fine, but John the Baptist said, no, that is not right. It is not lawful. Well, Herod, like any other king, didn't like being told what to do. So he had John the Baptist arrested and ultimately beheaded. You may remember the rest of that story. All that to say, speaking out against cavalier, no-fault divorce, or having a critical view of no-fault divorce was dangerous in the territory of Herod. There's a precedent already of capital punishment for those who speak out against cavalier divorce. And this fact was not lost on the Pharisees who wanted to put Jesus to death. And if they could manipulate Jesus into drawing the ire of Herod and being killed while in his territory, well, that would be a nice solution to the Jesus problem. So you can see why this topic was important and significant at this point in Jesus' ministry. The Pharisees already knew that Jesus would be on the more conservative end of the spectrum, which was less popular. All they needed to do is make sure this big crowd of people who had gathered around Jesus heard how restrictive, narrow-minded, and repressive Jesus' views regarding divorce and remarriage really were. If they could do that, they thought, they could undermine his influence over the people and with a little bit of luck, get him arrested and maybe even executed by Herod. So they hoped. So that's the trap. Get Jesus to express an unpopular opinion about divorce that makes people upset about him so he loses influence and gets in trouble with Herod. It's not a bad idea. I mean, if you're trying to kill Jesus, that's a pretty good plan. Let's see how it works out for him. Matthew records their question. Verse 3, is it lawful, is it right, is it just, is it prescribed for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? You can already see what camp they're on or what camp they're trying to force Jesus to respond to, right? With that any at all? It's quite a leading question. First, they use the term that means lawful or right in this context. In other words, they want Jesus to answer and answer as dogmatically as possible that it is legally prescribed. What they don't want is to leave any room for him to nuance his response. Secondly, they use that phrase for any reason, equivalent to the view of Hillel and his proponents who said that that term devar was to be understood to allow the husband to divorce for any reason that diminished his view of her. Well, how does Jesus answer? He knows they're talking about Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. He knows that's where this debate has been raging for 50-something years. Well, without missing a beat, Jesus answers. But he goes somewhere they weren't expecting. He skips right past Deuteronomy. He goes all the way back to Genesis. Interestingly, in rabbinical discourse, the further back you go, the more authority and weight you have. You can probably see the frustration building on their faces. Maybe one of them even mutters under his breath, just answer the question. But Jesus, knowing their hearts and their reason for asking, doesn't play their game. Instead, like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will anchor our understanding of marriage in creation and God's eternal purposes. Jesus is letting them know that they are thinking far too lightly 
completely wrongly about marriage, that to even be debating and trying to create a list of all the reasons for divorce is to completely miss the point of marriage. If I took my children to the Grand Canyon and told them I wanted them to stay away from the edge, and they spent the whole time arguing over what the edge meant, they would miss the whole point, wouldn't they? The point is to protect them while they enjoy an amazing view and picture of creation and judgment. But instead, they want to know how close can they get to the cliff, to that edge that could hurt them or kill them. That's what's going on here. And that's what Jesus is illustrating. These Pharisees have lost sight of God's purpose for marriage and focused solely on fulfilling their own selfish desires in this life. So Jesus looks back to Genesis 1 and 2 and asks them, actually tells them, why did God create man and woman? Why did he institute marriage to begin with? Who instituted it? Who created man and upon finding no helper suitable for him, which is really for climatic purposes, God knew already that of all the creation there wasn't a a helper suitable for him but he wants to draw it out so he brings every single animal and living being of his creation before Adam to just build the suspense so that when he creates woman it is something remarkable special there's a reason that he established the pattern for all future Humans, man and woman, coming together as this new unit described as the two becoming one flesh. This was God's creation plan. He created man and woman to be united together in marriage as one, and it was part of their image-bearing responsibility. It was part of their responsibility to rule and subdue all of creation together, one helping the other, the weaknesses and the strengths of the one complementing the other. This is God's plan. Why then are you looking for reasons to separate it? Why are you putting yourself in opposition to God's plan? Why are you focusing on minimal obedience? Trying to get as close to the edge, as close to judgment, as close to sin as possible. And the reality is that we do this every single time we try to see how far we can go before it's disobedience. Isn't it? It doesn't even have to be something as significant as marriage. When you come up with excuses to not ask others for forgiveness when you've sinned against them, you are opposing God and putting yourself in grave spiritual danger, when you speak harshly, even slanderously about someone, maybe it's your boss, because he's rude, he's difficult, and well, he deserves it. You are opposing God and putting yourself in grave spiritual danger. You're focused on minimal obedience. Children, when you try to find a way to disobey your parents, to work around what they clearly told you to do, to get around that instruction, You are putting yourselves in danger.
Well, these Pharisees are hard-hearted, as Jesus will point out momentarily. They're unfazed by Jesus' rebuke and their preoccupation with minimal obedience. If anything, these Pharisees are more put out than anything else right now. Because Jesus refuses to answer their question directly. I doubt they even heard him. And so that comment there for us, Jesus' answer in verses 4 through 6, is really more for our benefit than theirs. So they rephrase their question, trying to get Jesus to engage with Deuteronomy 24 in this ongoing controversy. They're frustrated he went to Genesis. They didn't see that one coming. In order for their plan to succeed, they need him to talk about Deuteronomy 24. So they ask, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, these are the Pharisees, so it's not beyond them, and they decided to twist the truth just a little bit. Notice they use the term command, or it's lawful, it is right as if it's a requirement, an absolute, unalterable requirement for the man to send the wife away if she ever falls out of favor. The Pharisees leave no room for grace, for repentance, for forgiveness. For them, if you don't hold to their version of no-fault divorce, then you must believe that it's commanded to divorce if she ever falls out of favor for immorality. Jesus, however calls him on it. He notes that it is merely permissible. He does not say it is required by law, but it is permissible. In other words, the sin of one spouse against the other can be forgiven. There is room for mercy and grace, especially where repentance is found. This is not Hammurabi's code that is unbending and harsh. In fact, all one has to do is look at the example of Hosea who even without the repentance of his wife pursued her several times. There was immense grace and mercy. Now, I'm not saying that's the right solution in every case, but what it does picture for us is the grace and the mercy that was always there. You know, if it had been one of the Pharisees instead of Hosea, they would have likely responded, sorry God, I can't go and get Gomer. I'm required by law to divorce her for her unfaithfulness. And the whole word picture would have been lost. We would have had 65 books of the Bible. You know, we look at this, we look at the unbending, the unmerciful attitude of the Pharisees. But I can't help but wonder, don't we do this all the time? Aren't we quick to declare someone guilty? Even more than that, aren't we quick to say that this guilt should be the lens through which we now view everything about this person? I mean, have you noticed that when it's others, we want to apply law, but when it's us, we want grace and mercy? We really need to work at showing more grace, more forbearance, and more mercy. Giving persons the benefit of the doubt, make them convince you that they are actually wrong and sinning. Don't be quick to jump to that conclusion. Well, Jesus answers this second question from the Pharisees, first by correcting them, noting them that it is permissible, not commanded. It is not an inviolable mandate. 
but it is permitted in this sinful, this fallen world. And in verse 8, Jesus draws the contrast between marriage in the garden to marriage outside the garden. To marriage before the curse of sin and marriage after sin entered the world because of Adam's disobedience and sin. Now I want to make one very important point in terms of how we view divorce in a sinful world. Hear me carefully on this. Neither God nor Moses ever permitted something that was sinful. Neither God nor Moses ever permitted something that was sinful, that was inherently sinful. And by that I mean decreed it. Why is that important? Well, because while divorce is always the result of someone's sin, divorce itself is not necessarily sinful. Now, I'm not trying to make it easy for divorce, not in the slightest. But we also have a context we live in, don't we? We live in a sinful, a fallen, a hurting world. And sin has marred every aspect of creation. This passage has been used throughout history to say a lot about divorce and remarriage. Which honestly I find quite ironic. Given that in this passage, Jesus refuses to play the Pharisee's game by providing a bunch of reasons for divorce. You see the irony? This passage where Jesus refuses to give the Pharisees a list of exceptions for divorce or to talk about the cliff edge, how close can you get, is frequently called the exception passage and one where we focus on how close can we get. We really are more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. And nevertheless... Despite God's original creation of marriage, Jesus notes that divorce is permitted. It is allowed because of sin. But he's quick to know this is not God's plan in creation. This is only because of sin. Why is that important? Because Jesus is saying don't focus on the ability to divorce. Yes, it's permitted, but don't focus on that. If you do, you're focused on the wrong thing. It's like someone attending a baseball game and only paying attention to the person selling popcorn. They're looking the wrong way. They should be focused on doing all that they can to maintain God's plan from the beginning. This is not a passage about divorce. Yes, it is, but it's not really. It's the foil for the real conversation. We should not be asking, how much can I get away with before I violate God's law? Instead, the focus is on working to fulfill God's original purpose. Again, this translates into so many other areas of life, doesn't it? We try to figure out, how often do I need to read my Bible in order for God not to be upset with me? How little do I need to pray before I grieve the Holy Spirit? How long can I look at a person before it's considered lustful? How frequently do I need to come to church? How often do I need to fellowship with others in order to avoid disobeying God? How little can I obey my parents without getting a discipline? These are all the wrong questions, aren't they? Instead, we should be asking, how do I fulfill God's purposes? What can I do today to fulfill God's purpose for my life and bring God 
joy. In verse 9, Jesus is calling many of these Pharisees and their followers adulterers. Not only have they been focused on the wrong thing, but their no-fault divorce has now made them into adulterers. This passage is not intended as an explanation of the only reason for divorce. That's not at all the point. Jesus' point here is they have made far too little of marriage, and as a result, they have become adulterers. I mean, he is just sticking the knife into them. The point of this passage is not the exception or exceptions, which it do exist for divorce. The point is how God's plan for marriage has not changed. It's really it's an indictment on our view of God. It's an indictment on how cavalier we are towards sin. In verses 10 to 12, the disciples get it. And it sends them into a bit of a panic. They realize that, oh, wait a second. Marriage is hard. Husbands and wives sin against each other. They hurt each other. And if you can't get out easily when two selfish people are living together, if you can't get out of marriage easily, then maybe it's just better not to marry at all. Well, before we comment much on verses 10 through 12, I think it is interesting. You know, we may be a lot like the Pharisees. We're also a lot like the disciples. We see something hard and we think, it's probably better not to do that. There's something within us that uh, somehow, for some reason it's sin, automatically associates hard with bad. That doesn't mean you always have to do the hardest thing. You don't have to become masochistic in your approach to life. But bad is not always, probably not even most of the time, I'm sorry, hard is not most of the time bad. In fact, often it's very good. We at least know that trials, according to James 1, are for our good. We know in Romans that God works all things, that means all the trials, all the difficulties, all the struggles of life, together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so it takes effort to begin to change our thinking, our approach, our perspective toward the difficult in life. That When it's hard to obey God, maybe we find the Maybe there's an easier way to do it. You know, we, I'll use this one because it's, I've seen the, the controversy that's ensued is there are very good reasons why you might choose to homeschool your children. There are likewise good reasons you might choose for leaving your children in school. There's nothing inherently sinful one way or the other. What has been concerning at times is watching parents who want to homeschool their children because they think that they, that's the easy way that will protect them from the sin. The problem is, the sin follows you into the bubble. The sin's in the children, the sin's in the parents. You don't get away with sin. You've exchanged one difficulty for another. And again, there may be very good and right reasons, wisdom reasons, why you may choose to do one over the, over the other and you should think carefully about that. But don't just think that running from one area of difficulty removes you from the struggle and the temptations of this life. They will follow you because, news alert, you're a sinner. We 
What Jesus identifies to the disciples after their somewhat frenzied response is that only persons who have been providentially set aside for singleness, either through desire or circumstance of life, should remain single. Otherwise, they will find that, like we've just said, they will have exchanged one difficulty for a whole other set of difficulties. And so the point, again, is that God's normal plan is for men and women to marry. The supernatural, the providential setting apart and gifting highlights the normality of God's original plan, His original purpose for men and women to marry and remain married. Any change to the marital relationship should be seen for what it is, the consequence of sin. Notice I didn't say it is always sin itself, but the consequence of sin. And it should be seen as grievous, bringing sorrow to us and to the Lord. We should also be careful not to see divorce as some unpardonable sin. It is permitted in some circumstances. Matthew 19 provides at least one of those circumstances. And while it is the result of sin, it is not automatically sinful. In fact, one of the parties may be a true victim. Legally speaking, innocent in it. But even in that, even in legitimate divorce, it will wreak havoc on lives and relationships. One person I was discussing this with who experienced divorce actually corrected me. We were talking about, is it, you know, next to losing the death of someone, divorce is the next second most painful thing. And he said, no, you've got that backwards. The most painful thing is divorce. Because death at least is final. You can't do anything else about it. But in divorce, you're reminded over and over and over again of the brokenness of this world and relationships, even if you are innocent in it. At least death brings an end to the pain and sorrow. It should really stand as a sober warning against any thought that divorce will automatically make things easier. That is very, very, very rarely the case. The heart of a true disciple does not ask, what are the limits of God's mercy and how close can I get to those limits? But instead, the disciple asks, how do I please the Lord? How do I love him? No wife, no husband wants a spouse who says, what are the minimum requirements of being a husband and wife? What is the minimum amount of time I need to spend with you? What is the minimum amount of honeydew chores I have to do for you to be happy? What is the minimum amount of affection I need to show in this relationship? None of us want that. No child wants a mother or father who thinks, what is the smallest amount of time and energy I have to invest as a father or a mother? No, they want your whole heart. And even that's not enough half the time. They want everything. They, they want you pouring into the relationship, trying to do the maximum, not the minimum. You see, this is the problem with legalism. Legalism, despite its best efforts, will always be focused on the minimum. Even if there's a ton of rules that makes you think you're moving way away from the line, 
Because the heart is always having to focus on where is the line drawn. What is the minimum I have to do? Not on maximizing my love and obedience. We need to turn away from the line, turn around, and focus on Christ. Legalism will always limit our capacity for love and obedience, at least true obedience. Well, as we're going to see, Pharisees aren't done with Jesus yet. They're going to come back for round two, three, four, five, till the cross. But at least for now, Jesus has successfully thwarted their attempts at ensnaring him. And so doing has left us with pretty heavy responsibility this morning to ensure that in our lives, specifically in how we view the Lord, that our efforts are about loving Him and serving Him. Not about asking, what is the minimal amount I have to do for Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons you've given us this morning from your word. Thank you for the clarity of Scripture, how it speaks so poignantly to our life. Even in a topic which has often become very myopic, very short-sighted and focused solely on divorce and remarriage, we realize there are so many implications. This is merely the launching pad for how we think and interact and engage with so many issues of this life. Help us this morning to evaluate our own lives faithfully, to not merely be hearers of the word, but doers of it, putting into practice the things we've been reminded of this morning. Would your spirit work to guide us and lead us, to convict us? And would we faithfully follow you? Amen.